this evening's reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into this outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the end of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of, of, of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, He took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything he cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one, 
he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is, that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Thanks be to God. Friends, do uh, turn back to Hebrews chapter 9, the uh, passage that Charlie read to us earlier. Let's bow our heads quietly for a moment and pray for God's help. God, our Father, you know each one of our hearts, and we ask that knowing our hearts and seeing right into the core of our being, you would be kind and move towards each one of us with grace and mercy tonight, as each of us has need. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the question. Do you have a guilty conscience? Is there something in your past and it gets you? Something that you have said, something that you've harbored in your heart, something you've seen, something you've done, and you know it was your fault and you can't seem to get rid of it. I'm not asking you to tell me, I don't want to know, but I do want you to ask yourselves. And I want to suggest that there are three ways in which every human being can answer that question. And here's the first. And I'm guessing that this first answer is the answer of most people in London today. And it runs something like this. Do you have a guilty conscience? No, not really. Not really. Sure, I'm not perfect. Sure, I've made mistakes. Sure, I've said and done things in the past I probably shouldn't have done. But, hey, I'm doing my best, and I'm not a lot worse than a lot of other people. And to be honest, I feel okay about myself, and I'm very suspicious when a Christian preacher starts asking a question like that. And I want to say to him, I know what you're doing. You're just trying to make me feel bad about myself. And if you go on doing that, I'm going to set my psychiatrist on you for damaging my self-esteem. Just don't do it. So let's take that first answer. I'm guessing that if there's somebody here and in your heart of hearts that is the answer that you'd give honestly. No, not really. Not too bothered about my conscience. I'm guessing that as Charlie read Hebrews chapter 9, you probably weren't riveted by it. You didn't immediately think this passage is cutting-edge stuff for 21st century Londoners. You didn't immediately think, I've got to listen to this. I'm guessing that you probably thought, hey, this is a bit complicated. I don't quite know why we're having this, but I'm enjoying the music and I've got some nice friends and I'll put up with it. That's what I'm guessing. 
So come with me into the first part of the passage. It divides, I think, really in two. And uh, come with me to verses 1 to 10. And what I want to persuade you is this, that if you don't have a guilty conscience, and I mean a really guilty conscience that really hurts, what you need is a good dose of really good religion. Let me explain what I mean as we go through this. Well, if you're here week by week, you'll know that we've been in the letter to the Hebrews. It's a New Testament letter written by an anonymous writer, probably to Jewish Christian people who were tempted to go back to Judaism and not to be Christian uh, Jews anymore. And uh, again and again and again, the writer points to how much better Jesus is and the new covenant, the new way of relating to God that Jesus has made possible, and so on. And chapter 8 is very much about that new covenant. And when we get to chapter 9 and then chapter 10 as well, one of the notes that begins to sound is this note of conscience. Just have a look with me, if you would. Chapter 9, verse 9, the end of verse 9, writes about things that were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Then glance on to verse 14, And you'll see halfway through the verse a reference to cleansing our consciences. Glance on to chapter 10, verse 2. The end of verse 2, you'll see the words, would no longer have felt guilty, and it's literally would no longer have had conscience for their sins. And just glance on to one more verse, chapter 10, verse 22. And you'll see halfway through verse 22, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And this business of conscience, consciousness of sin, awareness of sin, pressing on me, is one of the big themes that's, that's opened up here. Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 9 begin by saying the first covenant, that is what we would call the Old Testament, the Old covenant. He's just been speaking about that in the previous verse. He said that there's a new one which has made the first one obsolete, obsolete and aging. And in verse 1, he says the first covenant, I want us to keep thinking about it just for a little bit, and he says two things. It had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. And he takes those in in the opposite order. So verses 2, 3, 4, 5, he talks about the earthly sanctuary, that is the physical layout of the Old Testament stuff. So he says, verse 2, a tabernacle, a tent, a, a special tent was set up, and he describes it. He says, in its first room, just imagine if you've, if you've been camping, a tent, and you know, not those little pokey ones that you just just sneak into, you're going to just squeeze into, but the, the grand ones that you get when you grow up a bit and you can afford a big one. You know the sort of big tent where you, you, you go in through the, the opening and you go into the first bit of the tent and then maybe there's another little opening, a zip-up bit, and you can go into a back bit of the tent where you sleep, um, that, that, that kind of thing. And so he's describing a tent which is a bit like a grander version of one of those. So it's a two-room tent And the deal is that you go into the first room through the front door and you can't get into the second room except by going through the first room. 
So it's not actually that complicated. It's actually pretty simple to understand. A two-room tent, you can't get into the back room without going through the first room. So he describes it, verses 2, 3, 4, 5. He says, in the first room, there were, there were various things. There was a lampstand, you know, the menorah, the Jewish lampstand. There was a table, a special table with some consecrated bread on it, ceremonial stuff. This was called the holy place. It was a special place. And then verse 3, he says, behind the second curtain. So you went into that first room, and there was a, a big curtain at the back of it. And behind that second curtain was a second room, which was called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. And that was the place which, in Old Testament symbolism, that's where God lived. That was, as it were, where God put his feet on earth, in a sense, in a symbolic way. That was where you had to be if you wanted to get access to life and light and beauty and joy and anything that made worth living. You needed to be there, because that's where God was. That's the most holy place. And then he says, verse 4, there was various stuff there. There was a golden altar of incense. By the door, there was the ark or box of the covenant. And inside the box, there was various special um, things. And above the ark, there were some cherubim, some angels, uh, and so on. And then he says at the end of verse 5, we can't discuss these things in detail now. This guy loves this kind of thing. He could talk for England about all the details of that kind of thing. I'm sure he was, a Jew, he was Jewish. I mean, he just loved it. He's, you know, a bit like a sort of train spotter, really. I mean, he just, you know, he could, have, he could have gone on and on telling you about all the details. But he says, look, I'm really sorry, there isn't time. We say, well, thanks, that's a bit of a relief for us. But, <laughs> but, but, but he's described it. And then he says in verses 6 um, uh, and 7, he describes the arrangements for it, what happened there. So verse 6, he said, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests, and the whole bundle of them, they entered regularly into the outer room, the holy place, the first room, to carry on their ministry. So in the first room, the holy place, if you watched there, you, you'd find that every day, it was a bit like a hospital ward with people coming on and off their shifts. Whenever it was your turn on, your, on the rotor, you went in there and you trimmed the, the wicks of the candles or you changed the bread or whatever else you had to do. Maybe you hoovered it. I don't know what you had to do, but you, you just went in and out and in and out and there were loads of them just going in and out and in and out. It was quite a bustly kind of place, really, that first room. But verse 7 only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood. So it's this massive great difference. He says, here's a simple picture. If you, if you say I'm not really bothered about conscience, think about this. There's a little inner room in this, in this kind of picture language which is where God lives, who is the source of light and life and joy and beauty and peace and everything that makes worth li- life worth living. That is the most holy place. And if you want to find any lasting connection with what makes life worth living, you've got to be there. And then he says, you can almost get there. You kind of go into the first bit if you're a priest and you can go in and out and in and out and in and out whenever it's your turn on the rotor and you can do the stuff that you do in that outer one. But every time you go there, you look at that curtain. And I wonder if this guy came from a priestly family and I wonder if his father or grandfather had told him about those times when you went into the first room and you looked at that curtain and you longed to go through that curtain. But you kept being told... You'd say, you're going to, can't I even peep behind that curtain? 
Can't I just have a look behind that curtain at the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim and all the things that, that stand for God being there? And you really, really want to go there. And they say to you very firmly, no, if you even, if you even sneak a, a glance behind there, you will die. And it's incredibly vivid. And just once a year, as a sign of hope for the future, just once a year, one priest, the chief priest, went through there. And it never without blood, never without sacrifice. And it was a massive, great um, visual aid. And it says to us today what it said to them then, which is this. You and I may say, well, I'm not too bothered about my conscience. I, I feel I'm doing all right. I feel my self-esteem's okay. I'm, I'm no worse than anybody else. But the reality is that you and I, even if we had the best religion in the world, which is what the Old Testament um, Judaism was, God-given religion, fantastic religion, beautiful, wonderful religion, even if you had that, you couldn't get there. You couldn't get access to God. So if someone says, well, I've tried being a decent British sort of person, a nice person, now you can't go through the curtain. I've tried other religions. You can't go through the curtain. I've tried some kind of New Age mysticism. You can't go through the curtain. And the the picture says to us very simply, the one place you and I need to go as human beings, the one place we absolutely must have access to if we care about life, is the one place we cannot go. And if we try to go there, we will die. That's what the picture language says. And friends, if there's somebody here and your honest answer to the question, do I have a guilty conscience, is no, I don't really care much about my conscience. If that's your answer, you need to understand that the message of this, it it seems long ago and far away, but it's absolutely true. And it is saying to you that unless something happens to give you access to that second room in in that picture language then you will be excluded from life and light and beauty and love and joy and peace. And the day will come when you will be excluded forever. So it's a massively important, massively important picture. And when I say, I mean, it sounds a bit light-hearted to say you need a dose of really good religion, but I mean it seriously. And it's a very striking thing that, that it's possible in church life, to be a sort of Christian without ever having experienced the misery of a guilty conscience. A few centuries ago, a man called Melanchthon wrote to Martin Luther, the Reformation time or after the Reformation, about some people who called themselves Christians, and Melanchthon wasn't quite sure whether they were or not. And he said, you know, to Luther, could you give me some advice? And Luther said, he said, find out from them whether they've ever experienced the misery of a guilty conscience. If their spiritual experience has always been easy and nice and warm and fuzzy, and I'm paraphrasing Luther, but this is the gist of it. He said if their experience of, of what they call the Christian life is always just warm, nice, fuzzy, and, you know, I, I was quite enjoying life and now I'm enjoying life a bit more, don't believe that they're Christians. Quite striking that, isn't it? It's not that everybody experiences the misery of a guilty conscience before they first come to Christ. But if at no stage in your experience of Christianity have you ever felt 
the misery of a guilty conscience, it's a worrying sign. Because this, this, this dose, as it were, of Old Testament religion is saying in this vivid picture language, this inability to get into the presence of God matters hugely. And so, verse uh, 8, when the writer says, what's this all about? He says, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. It wasn't, wasn't yet open. In other words, the whole point of the picture of the two rooms was that so long as the first room was there, you couldn't get through into the second room. And he says it's an illustration, verse 9, for the present time, to show that the gifts and sacrifices were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They're only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings. They're outward things, but they can't change the heart. So let's just suppose that you and I have given up on that first answer. That we're not prepared to say, no, I'm not really honestly very bothered about my conscience. My conscience doesn't particularly trouble me. We're not prepared to say that. We can begin to see, we begin to experience an awakened conscience and the misery of that. And I guess a number of us here would be able to tell stories of that, of things in our past that we know are our fault. And we've given up on the strategy of just getting used to it. And we've given up on the strategy of just trying to bury it in some way. And we've given up on the strategy of just trying to blame somebody else for it. Because it's come home to our heart and our conscience that these things were my fault. I didn't have to do them. I didn't have to say them. I didn't have to harbor that in my heart. I didn't have to watch that. I didn't have to be that sort of person. And it's my fault. And it just keeps bugging me. Have you had that experience? It's a horrible experience of a guilty conscience. And you wake up in the night sometimes in a sweat and you just think this is awful. Because you realize how serious it is. If you and I get to that stage where we give the second answer to the question, do you have a a guilty conscience, say, yes, I know what a guilty conscience is. I know that in my experience. Then we're ready for the rest of Hebrews 9. Because the rest of Hebrews 9, although it seems quite long ago and far away-ish stuff, describes to us something that happened in the history of the world that means it is possible for you and I, whatever our past Whatever has happened to us, whatever we've done, said, and thought, to go into that second room with a clear conscience into the presence of God. So let's have a look at this second half. And I think it divides really in three, but I think the three truths that we get are all given us in verses 11 and 12. So let me tell you what they are first, and then we'll look briefly at each one. Verse 11, when Christ came as high priest, so every time you saw the high priest going into that inner room once a year, it was a sign of hope that one day there'd be a real high priest. When he came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, that is in the new covenant, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made. So it it was a different place. That is to say, not a part of this creation. I'll come back to that, a different place. Second verse 12, he didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, animal sacrifices, 
But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, a different sacrifice, a different place, a different sacrifice. And the end of verse 12, having obtained eternal redemption, a different result. And we'll take those in turn. First of all, a different sacrifice. Verses 13 through 22. And I'm not going to go through this in detail, but just, I think, every single verse of 13 to 22 mentions blood or death. Every single one. Let me t- talk, talk you fairly quickly through it so we can, we can take a step back and think about it. Verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, the various animal sacrifices, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them, make them holy, so that they're outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, not an animal sacrifice, but the sacrifice of a human being offering himself, how much more will that cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, a different sacrifice? And right the way through 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, he talks about the need for blood, and the need for a death. So verse 15, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He's died as a ransom, verse 15, to set them free, and so on. And then if if you glance on to verse 20, the verse 19, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law, this is back in the book of Exodus to all the people, He took the blood of calves together with water and scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and he sprinkled the scroll, that is the law, and he sprinkled the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. It's a quote from Exodus chapter 24. And then verse 21, he sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. This is so counterintuitive, isn't it? If you and I spill blood on a bit of clothing or a tablecloth, the first thing we want to do is get rid of it. Blood makes things dirty. And yet in the Old Testament, everything had to be sprinkled with blood. They had blood sprinkled everywhere. And it was a kind of visual aid saying, without the death of a substitute, without somebody paying the price for sinners, there can't be any forgiveness. And what the writer is saying is that when Christ came, all those little copies, those animal sacrifices, which couldn't actually do anything except be a a visual aid, when Christ came and offered himself a different sacrifice, he did something which genuinely paid for sinners and really did so. And then in verses 23 and 24, not just a different sacrifice, but a different place, Verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified. So what he's saying there is that the whole two-room tent system, all that Old Testament stuff, wasn't the real thing. So in that system, you went into the first room, and the first room functioned as a barrier to stop you going into the second room. But what he's saying is that that was a copy. That wasn't the real barrier between human beings and God. But what, what Christ did was um, he, he, he purified the heavenly things themselves, the real barrier. Because verse 24, he didn't enter a man-made sanctuary, just a, you know, a physical tent that was just a copy 
of the true one. He entered heaven itself, the presence of God, now to appear for, for us in God's presence. In other words, there is a real barrier between human beings and God, a real barrier which, which alienates us from God and excludes us from God's presence. That two-room tent thing was a visual aid. It was a brilliant visual aid, but it was only a visual aid. It was a copy. But what Christ did when he himself died is he went through the real barrier into the real presence of God for us. And look at the consequence, verse 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. So in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the the high priest every year on the Day of Atonement, he'd go in and he'd come out again. And he'd go in a year later and come out again. He'd go in and come out again a year later, year after year after year after year. And every year that happened, if you were a believer, you'd say, I wonder if one day there'll be a real priest who will really go in. And that's what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. He has genuinely achieved what was foreshadowed there. Because if he'd done it again and again, verse 26, he had, had to suffer many times. Every time I sin, it would have made him suffer more. You sometimes come across that idea, don't you? I don't want to sin because it'll hurt Jesus. You know, the, the, the idea that in the sacrifice of the Roman Catholic Mass, we are, as it were, offering the sacrifice of Jesus again and again and again. And wonderfully, the writer to the Hebrews says, no, no, no. Once, verse 26, once for all, once for all time, once for all his people, he has done this. And then verse 27, just as man, human beings are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. No purgatory, no second chance. When a human being dies, they, as it were, they go through the curtain into the presence of God, and if they're unforgiven, they face judgment. But in the same way, verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once. He paid the price for sinners to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear just as the high priest used to come out of the Holy of Holies. The Lord Jesus one day will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. A different sacrifice, a different place, and a different result. So let me come now to the third answer to that question. The first answer to the question, do you have a guilty conscience, is no, I'm not really bothered about conscience. The second answer is yes, I have a terribly guilty conscience. I know all about a guilty conscience, and I know how miserable it is. And the Christian answer is neither of those. It's certainly not, no, I'm not bothered, because I understand that a guilty conscience is a terrible thing. The Christian answer begins with, yes, I know what a guilty conscience is. I knew what a guilty conscience is before, and from time to time in my Christian life, I know acutely what a guilty conscience is. And maybe there's somebody here and you're a real Christian believer, but a guilty conscience is troubling you, and you wake at night troubled by something that you've said or done. It may just be in your thought life, it may be nobody else knows about it, but you are troubled by that. 
And Hebrews chapter 9 says to you, as it says to me, that whenever we are troubled by a guilty conscience, we don't say, oh, it doesn't matter. We don't try to bury it. We don't harden ourselves against it. We don't try to find excuses or blame somebody else. But what we do do is we go to Jesus again and again. And we remember that the Lord Jesus, that great high priest, has gone through the real barrier for us. That he's paid the penalty for our sins in his own blood. And that he's achieved for us once for all an eternal salvation. And the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that I can come to Jesus again and again. One of the old Puritans put it like this. He said, uh, we must, as it were, apply the blood of Christ to our hearts and consciences again. If we find that we've sinned, we must run at once to the blood of Christ to wash away our sin. And he says very vividly, let us not sleep one night without a fresh pardon. Better sleep in a house full of adders and venomous beasts than sleep in one sin. Be sure day by day to come to Jesus afresh and to claim afresh the blood of Jesus to cleanse our sins. It's not that our sins have ceased to be cleansed, but it's that you and I can lose the enjoyment of that. We can begin to feel the accusation of a guilty conscience. And friends, I want to, I don't know your hearts and you don't know mine. But I want to speak to you whatever answer you would have given to that question. And if there's somebody here and you're not a Christian, and to be honest, you're not very bothered about conscience, I want to say to you, your conscience is massively important. And that any time in your life that you have experienced or do or will experience a guilty conscience, that is not just make-believe, That is you subjectively understanding something which is objectively true, which is that you and I cannot walk into the presence of the Holy God who is the source of light and life and joy and peace and love. And if you're not a Christian believer, I want to say to you that you can try what you like. You can try religion. You can try trying hard to be decent. You can try mysticism. You can try anything you like. You cannot get into the presence of a holy God in any other way but by the blood of Jesus. And then I want to say to you, if you're a Christian believer, and if, like me, there have been times when, as a Christian, you've been troubled afresh by a guilty conscience, and there's something and you can't get rid of it, and it's just coming back to accuse you and accuse you and accuse you, and you feel awful, I want to say to you, come afresh to the blood of Christ. It may well help you to do that with another Christian whom you trust. may well help you to come to another Christian whom you trust and to say there's this, and I haven't told anyone about it, but but will you pray with me that I will begin to enjoy the forgiveness again of the blood of Christ? And then I want to say to you, if you're a Christian believer and you are rejoicing in a cleansed conscience. I want to say to you, go on rejoicing. Don't ever get used to it. Don't ever take for granted what the Lord Jesus has done. Reapply that blood, as it were, to your conscience day by day, week by week, morning by morning, evening by evening, and rejoice in what he has done. It is a wonderful thing
to be able to have access into that second room, into the presence of God, our Heavenly Father himself, by the blood of Jesus. It's not surprising we sing about that. It's not surprising we rejoice in that. And I'd love it if that was something that characterized us more and more. Let's be quiet for a moment, and I'll pray as we end. God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his free offering of himself to pay the price for sins, to bring sinners through the curtain into your presence. Now we ask that as each of us has need, you would work graciously in us to awaken dull consciences, to soothe and give us the assurance of the cleansing of awakened consciences and to give us the joy of walking with that cleansed conscience. In Jesus' name, amen.